You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. We'll begin reading again at verse 18. We're going to be looking today specifically at verse 28 and 29, so we'll catch the context here with verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire that your blessing would rest upon the study of your word We thank you that we have had the freedom and the opportunity to gather here and to worship you. And our prayer is that we may honor the Son and thus honor you, and that you might be glorified through our time together. In your word, help us to see Christ and his power and his majesty, that in seeing him we might savor him and be more transformed into his image. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth and open your word to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of all the theological or doctrinal subjects that the Scripture speaks about, I would have to say that the resurrection, the doctrine of resurrection, is probably one of my top favorite three. It's really close to number one. The resurrection of Christ, um, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation, and the doctrine of the deity of Christ, or the doctrine of the Trinity, would probably be my three, and I'm not sure, it depends on what mood I'm in as to which one of those is actually first. This morning, the resurrection of Christ is my favorite doctrine, because this happens to be what we're thinking about and what we're talking about. And ever since I was a believer, I was convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. That was part of the gospel message that I heard. I placed my faith in that Savior, and I knew that anybody who died in my place and promised me eternal life had to be able to come back from the grave. And Jesus did, and I believed that he came back from the grave. And I believed what Scripture said. I believed it to be the Word of God, and I embraced it as true. And my faith never wavered in my confidence that Jesus was risen three days after he was crucified. I believed that, and I was confident of that. Although at the time, when I first got saved, I didn't know 
any of the historical evidences for the resurrection of Christ. I was unaware of the the historical evidences that Jesus actually did rise again. So during my first year at Bible school, in sort of a personal study project that was really unrelated to any of my classes, I decided with all of the resources at the school to dive into the historical evidences for the resurrection. And one of the most thrilling things that I discovered was the wealth, the wealth, the absolute volumes of historical evidence there is for the resurrection of Christ. Up until that time, I had accepted it as faith, but I had figured there probably isn't any historical evidence for it. I mean, after all, it happened 2,000 years ago, and all we have is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four guys. So we're going to have to take it mostly at faith. But I was thrilled to see the historical evidence that exists for the deity of Christ, or for the resurrection of Christ. But even though I was thrilled to find that out, and thrilled to discover all of this wealth of historical evidence, which just confirmed my faith, and sort of strengthened me in it, what I did not at the time completely understand was the full future ramifications of that event upon not only my life and my future, but the future of all men. And I remember studying the historical evidences for Christ, coming to a point where I said to myself, this is the most significant, the most consequential, the most fundamentally important event that has ever happened in the history of the universe, and that is no overstatement. That is an understatement of anything. What I didn't know was even though that was so fundamental, so important, so central to everything, all of life, what I didn't realize, I hadn't connected the dots yet to what that fully meant for my future. And it wasn't for several years later that I came to understand that the resurrection of Christ is the ironclad guarantee of my own future resurrection from the dead. And not just my own future resurrection from the dead, but the resurrection of all believers to share in the resurrection to life. And not only that, but I was amazed to find out in Scripture that it is not just the the saved, the believers, the redeemed that are resurrected at the end of time. Friends, it is all people who will be resurrected at the end of time. There are two resurrections. The resurrection to life, of which Jesus Christ was the first fruits, and all of us will share in that with Him. As the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as, as human, as man, Jesus Christ entered into humanity and He participated in that first resurrection, the resurrection to life, which all believers will share in that eventually, each in their order. And then there is the resurrection to judgment. The resurrection to judgment in which all who are unredeemed and unsaved and impenitent and lost will also share in that resurrection. And that resurrection will not result in life. Both resurrections result in the eternal state. The resurrection to judgment results in resurrection to just that, judgment. Judgment before the wrath of God for sin. All of that was secured and guaranteed and prefigured and foreshadowed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Now recently we've been going through John 5. I know some of you are new, you have been here for a few weeks, so I'm just going to give you a quick overview of the context. Basically in John 5, we have been following sort of two parallel um, doctrines, uh, significant doctrines. The subject of life, living, spiritual life, spiritual death, and eternal life, and also the subject or the doctrine of judgment. And we started back in verse 21 with the subject of life, and we saw that Jesus is able to give life, eternal spiritual life or physical life, to whomever He wishes. Whomever He wishes, because He is sovereign over that. 
And then we talked about judgment and saw that the Father doesn't judge anybody. All that judgment has been committed to the Son. Past, present, and future judgment, all of it is given to the Son by decree of the Father. The Father has willed that the Son will be the divine agent to judge men. Then we jump back over to the subject of spiritual life and living an eternal life again in verses 24 and 25 and saw that all of those who hear the voice of the Son of God and believe in the One whom He has sent, who will humble themselves and turn to Him, He will grant eternal life because He is sovereign and can give life to whomever He wishes. Those who will believe on Him and trust themselves to Him, He will give them eternal life and they will pass from a state of death, spiritual death, into a state of spiritual life. Then in verses 26 and 27, we went back to the theme of judgment again. And that is that Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, has the authority and the capacity to judge men because of His incarnation, because He is humanity, and because He is God and man, He is perfectly fitted to execute the judgment of God upon men. Now in verses 28 and 29, those two parallel tracks meet, as it were, with the doctrine of resurrection. We've been hinting at physical resurrection because we've been talking about spiritual resurrection and eternal life. And in verse 28 and 29, we have the subject of life and judgment, and they come together and they meet at this very important doctrine of the resurrection. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. See those two themes? We've been following them all along through John 5. Now here they come together at the subject of the resurrection. So today, though it is Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be talking about resurrection, but not specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm taking that as a given. I'm, I'm assuming that. In order to talk about resurrection in a more general sense, or actually in a broader sense, and that is not just the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of all men. Because every person seated here and every person who has ever lived will spend eternity in a resurrected body. Either a resurrected body that is fit for the glories and the joys of eternal life or a resurrected body that is fit for the agonies and the sufferings of eternal judgment under the wrath of God for the sin that that person has committed. There are two resurrections, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. We're going to see as we go through verses 28 and 29 four characteristics of this resurrection, four qualities of it. First, that it is certain. Second, it is comprehensive. Third, it is corporeal. And fourth, it is conclusive. First of all, it's certainty. And before we jump into this, I want you just to note something. Notice that nowhere in John 5 does Jesus tell us the timing of these events. If you're looking here for when this happens or in what order it happens, are the is the judgment to, the resurrection to life first or the resurrection to judgment first? Do they take part uh, take place at the same time? Are they separated by a time period? Do they take place over a period of time? None of those questions are answered in John 5. All Jesus is dealing with in John 5 is not the timing of these events. He's not laying out for us eschatology, that is a study of the end times. What he is laying out for us is his own divine claims to the power and prerogative to do these two things. Give life and judge men. That is what he's demonstrating. So he's not interested in teaching us the timing of these events. So we can't talk about the timing. There's much more that we need can say about that. And we may address the timing issue next week. We may talk about the timing or the order of these events next week. I haven't quite decided if we want to do that or not. But anyway, first quality of this resurrection, it is certain. Jesus said, do not marvel at this. An hour is coming. An hour is coming. Do not marvel at this. 
Now, the original language, the do not marvel at this, does not refer to what is about to come. It refers back to what Jesus has already said from verses 19 all the way through verse 26. Do not marvel at these things, or verse 27. Do not marvel at these things. Everything he had said in the context would have been shocking. I have the power and the sovereignty to give life to whomever I wish. All of the divine judgment has been given to me. If you will believe on me, I will give you eternal life, and you will live forever with me. If you will repent and acknowledge me, you will pass out of death into life. I am sovereign and able to give life, and I am sovereign and I will judge. And because I am both God and man, I am perfectly fitted to execute the judgment of God upon men. Now, anybody who was standing there hearing that, all of the Jews who says in verse 18 were trying to kill him, would have at that moment, their jaws would have been laying on the ground to hear a man make claims like that. It was utterly inconceivable and unbelievable that a man in human flesh could make such outlandish claims like that. But then Jesus says, don't marvel at that. You think that's something. An hour is coming when I'm going to say the word and all of the dead will come out of the tombs. So he's just taking it up a whole nother level. Don't marvel at what I've told you. Wait until you see this. If you think this is phenomenal, wait until the last day when I utter a word and the dead come out of their tombs and stand before me. That's going to be something. An hour is coming. It is certain. The resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, the resurrection to life and the resurrection to judgment, those events are fixed on the calendar of God and they are inalterably fixed and infallibly fixed. They cannot be changed. Nothing is going to delay that and you cannot postpone it and you cannot avoid it and there is nothing you can do to change it. And there is nothing you can do to slow it down and there is nothing you can do to escape it. Friends, the the beat of your heart pounds out the marching beat of your day, your appointment with that day. And every beat of your heart takes you one step closer. And you are today a day closer to the resurrection of the just and the unjust than you were yesterday. And you are today one year closer to the resurrection of the life to life and the resurrection to judgment than you were a year ago at this time when you sat here and listened to the Easter message. Every day passes and we are one day closer to that event. It is absolutely certain an hour is fixed and a day is fixed and the judge has been appointed and that date is set and you and I are marching toward that day. Now that's either good news for you or it's bad news for you. It's good news if you are going to share in the resurrection to life. It is horribly terrifying news if you are going to share in the resurrection to judgment. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, Paul said on Mars Hill before the Areopagus, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day for judgment. He has fixed a day for the resurrection. He has fixed the day when you will receive your new body. And he has appointed the judge for that day. And that day cannot be altered. It is absolutely certain that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Not only is it certain, but friends, it's comprehensive. Jesus says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs. How many? All. Everybody who has died will share in one of these two resurrections. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth to the resurrection, either to life or to judgment. And you say, but he says all, but Jesus uses the word tombs. So does that exclude people who are not buried in tombs? If it's all who are in the tombs, what about the people who have died at sea or been eaten by beasts or been burned in a house? 
What about those? Do they get to share in either one of these resurrections? Or is it just people lying in tombs? Now, Jesus is speaking to Jews. Remember verse 18. This is a Jewish figure of speech. It was something that the Jews did. The Jews buried their dead in tombs. So the idea of tombs was associated with the dead. And all Jesus is doing is using a figure of speech to say all of the dead. Because the tombs are the place, not of the living, but of the dead. And so he's using a figure of speech to communicate the idea of the dead. All who are in the tombs, that is to say, all of the dead, whether they are in the seas or whether they are uh, burned and cremated or whether they are buried, they will all share in this resurrection. I've had people ask me, what about being cremated? If I have my body cremated, does that affect anything in my future in the resurrection? It doesn't at all. Any more than having your body eaten by sharks or having your body burned down in a house or having your body just rot in the ground until it is no more. There is coming a time when all who are in the tombs, all of the dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will come forth. Now let me describe to you the resurrection of the righteous. Because Scripture describes both of these resurrections, though we are told more about the body of the righteous than we are about the bodies that the unrighteous receive. It is all of the saved and all of the redeemed who eventually will share in this resurrection to life. Now listen, this includes all the Old Testament saints. And however your eschatology plays out, maybe we'll talk about this next week, however your eschatology plays out, David and Jeremiah and Daniel and Moses and Noah and all of the great godly men of the Old Testament, they will all share in this resurrection to life. They will receive resurrected bodies just like you and I. And all of the dead, Old Testament and New Testament in the history of the world, they will share in the resurrection to judgment as well. We know it is all because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says of the resurrection of the righteous, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Um, I heard, I think it was from John MacArthur, he said that's the motto for their nursery. I think we should put that over the nursery in our new building. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's all of us. All of us that will enjoy this resurrection to life. Not all of us are going to die and go into the tombs, but there will be a twinkling of an eye and a last trumpet, and this perishable will put on imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality, because this perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And when this mortal has put on immortality and I am changed in an instant at that resurrection of the just, then I will be fit for heaven and for eternity. But not until then. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 23. Since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And it's not all will be saved in Christ, but all who are in Christ will be made alive. Each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then it is all the wicked who will also be raised. Listen to Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. That's the idea of the scope of the type of people, both the great people, the mighty ones, the renowned and the small, the insignificant people, all of them, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is all, the, all of the damned who were also resurrected. That is the resurrection to judgment that you just heard John describe in Revelation 20. So all who are saved receive the resurrection to life. If you have been redeemed and you have been given eternal life, 
and you live today because you have heard the voice of the Son of God and come to Him in repentant faith and been born again, then you will enjoy the resurrection to life. That is good news. If you have not been saved and you have not been redeemed and not repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, you will share in the resurrection to judgment. But all men will be raised. And notice the operative agent in the resurrection. It is the voice of the Son of God. The same voice that gives us spiritual life will raise us either to spiritual life or to spiritual death. He will utter the word. He will say the word. He will make the declaration. He will say or do something. And that voice will call forth all people from the tombs to their resurrected bodies. The voice of the Son of God. What Jesus says in John 5 was somewhat shocking to the Jews simply because they didn't fully understand uh, all of the implications of resurrection. They believed that there would be a resurrection of the just. In Jesus' day, the Jews who were hearing him didn't quite understand that there would also be a resurrection of the unjust or a resurrection to judgment. They believed in the resurrection of the just because they could read Job 19, Isaiah 26, and passages in Ezekiel that spoke of a physical resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, for instance. They knew from the prophets from the Old Testament, Psalm 16, that there would be a resurrection. What they didn't understand was that there would also be a resurrection for the unjust. That the unjust or the, the unsaved, the unredeemed, the wicked would also get a body. They thought that the wicked would re, uh, remain in a disembodied state or simply be annihilated. And here Jesus is sharing with them two pieces of information that the Jews, nobody could have understood before this. Number one, that there will be a resurrection of the unjust in a body, but also second, that this resurrection would take place at the hand of the Messiah because the Jews thought this was the prerogative of God. Only God raised the dead. Only God has the power to raise the dead. God will raise the dead. And the resurrection at the end of time will be the work of, it will be a divine work of God. And here Jesus is saying, that's my work. I will do this. And of course, they understood exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to have the power to raise people from the dead. And it will be him, and he will do it. He is the Messiah, and his voice will call forth all from the tombs. It is certain. It is comprehensive. It is all people. The third mark, it is corporeal. Corporeal. And I use that word for two very important reasons. Number one, because some of you have no idea what corporeal is, and so this is a good opportunity to teach you a new word. It means physical or bodily. Second reason I use it is because it starts with a C and I needed a C to make my alliteration work. It's certain, it's comprehensive, it's corporeal. That is, it's physical, it's of the body, it's of the corpus. It's a bodily resurrection. The resurrection that's being described in John 5 is a bodily resurrection. Just like Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. It was a physical body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What temple was he speaking of? John chapter 2, verse 21. It was the temple of his body. And that was the very temple that he raised up. It was his body. It was glorified. It was eternal. It was immortal. It was incorruptible. It was imperishable. It did not decay. It will never die again. It was glorious and mighty. But it was his body. And the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous is a physical resurrection. All receive a body. Scripture says more about our bodies, that is, the body of the redeemed or the saved, than it does about the resurrection of the bodies of the unrighteous. 1 Corinthians 15 was written to believers and it describes our body as being glorious and powerful and mighty and imperishable and incorruptible. All of those words that are used to describe the body that we get. So what do we know about the body of the unredeemed? The body of the unjust, the resurrection to judgment. What type of body do they get? Well, Jesus said that the eternal state of those who will not repent and believe upon Him will be a state in which the worm will devour them and never cease. So it will be a body that will be devoured a body that will be consumed, but a body that will never cease to exist. 
It will be a body that will be consumed by flames and burned by flames, but will never be consumed by flames and totally annihilated by flames. It will be an eternal body. The body of the unredeemed will be an eternal body fit, fit for judgment. Friends, we were born in this body. We lived in this body. We sin in this body. We die in this body. And the wicked will spend eternity suffering in a body. That's incredible. With all that goes with a body. The righteous, those who have been redeemed by faith in Christ, will spend eternity in a body. Not suffering. But it will be a glorious and powerful and incorruptible body. It's a glorious truth. We will be raised in bodies and our resurrection will be a bodily resurrection. That's the imagery that Jesus intended with the word tomb. What went into a tomb? Bodies went into tombs. So he's speaking to Jews who were familiar with the concept of tombs. Jews buried their dead. They didn't burn their dead. They buried their dead. And they put them into tombs. And they put them into graves. So when he refers to graves and the dead coming out of the graves, the imagery that's being communicated to them is like Lazarus, dead people walking. Literally the dead coming out of the earth. It's exactly the imagery that he intended because that is exactly what is going to happen. All who are in the tombs, in their bodies, will be raised again. Christians have a terribly inadequate, at least most Christians, not all Christians, have a terribly inadequate, and I would say even blasphemous view of heaven. We buy into this Gnostic, Platonic notion that everything that's evil and material is, or everything that's material and physical is evil. And that's not true. God created the physical world. He created our bodies. He created things physical. And material things are not sinful and horrible in and of themselves. And so our notion of, our notion of heaven seems to be that we're all going to be floating around in a disembodied state, trying to hug each other, but not really able to, because what one spirit hugging another spirit, how does that work? We can't do that. So we, we float around and we sing a song. And we sing another song. And there's just sort of a low-hanging fog there. And we all hang out in the low-hanging fog, and we hear the things being played in the distance, and we get glimpses of, the, of God on His throne lifted up, and that's how we spend eternity in this disembodied state. And we don't... We can't really shake each other's hands. We can't pat each other on the back. We can't really um, embrace each other or do anything physical. We can't throw a ball around because all of that's evil, right? That's the Greek notion that true salvation was liberation from this body. That's not a Christian notion. That's a pagan notion. True salvation in the biblical sense, friends, is not liberation from this body. It is being in this body for all of eternity in a glorified state. That's the doctrine of resurrection. Look, I... I love to see things. I would hate to be blind. And I, I feel horrible for people who are blind. Because I love to see sunrises, sunsets, flowers, people, trees, lakes, mountains, roads, buildings. I love to see things. I love to read and I love to see things. And I love to smell things. I love to smell um, newborn uh, babies. And I love to smell flowers. And I love to smell trees and the breeze. And I love to smell incense and candles and all of that stuff. And I love to sell, smell soap. I love the smell of wonderful soap. I love, I love smelling things. I long to smell things. I'm a very smelly person. And I mean that in a different sense. Not that I smell, but that I like to smell. And I love to smell things. I love to smell fruits and vegetables and meat roasting on a grill. And I love to touch things. I love to shake people's hands. I like the feel of a good firm handshake. I love to be patted on the back, and I love to pat other people on the back. I love to hug people. I love to wrestle with my kids. I love to play ball. I love to run and jump and skip and, and play and work and do all of those things. I love to hear things. 
I love to hear bells. I love to hear people talk. I love to hear the wind whistling through the trees. And we live our whole lives down here where we enjoy all of the blessings of these five senses. And then we think that heaven's going to mean the absence of all of that, and it's no wonder we don't want to go there. Who would want to give up all of this to go there and do nothing and have nothing and be nothing in a spirit? But when you understand that the eternal state is a physical, glorified body in a new heavens and a new earth with thrones and cities and walls and trees and rivers and lakes and grass and hills and flowers, it is this creation renewed and resurrected, your body renewed and resurrected, all of that, with all of the saints of old, without disease, without sickness, and without illness, and without the ravages of sin. That sounds better, doesn't it? That is the resurrection of the just. That is the resurrection to life. It is physical. It is it's more physical than this. This is a shadow. This is an illusion compared to eternity. It's better than this. You take all of the enjoyment of your senses here and you ratchet them up and say, without the ravages of sin, what do we get to look forward to in eternity? For all of eternity, one level of joy after another in a physical body. That is heaven. That is the hope that is held out for those who will trust Christ and honor the Father by honoring the Son. It's corporeal. It's physical. So it's certain, it's comprehensive, it's corporeal or physical. And fourth, it's conclusive. It's conclusive. This resurrection that we're talking about here is conclusive in the sense that this is the beginning of the eternal state. When you are resurrected to the resurrection of life, listen, you will never pass from life to death. You will never die again. You never have to fear that you're going to start eternity in the resurrection to life and end it in the resurrection to death. Or that somehow you're going to pass from one to the other. This resurrection is conclusive. This is it. When you are resurrected to life, that's it. That's all you will ever enjoy. And when you are resurrected to judgment, friends, that's it. That's all you will ever suffer. That's all you will ever experience is the judgment. This is a conclusive resurrection. This is the beginning and this is the description of the state that all of humanity will find themselves in, either life or judgment. Those are the two options. There's no third option. And this is a conclusive resurrection. None of those who are resurrected to judgment will ever pass from judgment into life. That's it. When he speaks the word, actually when you die, your fate is sealed. There's no post-mortem opportunity to change that. But when he speaks the word, friends, that is the beginning. That is the beginning of eternity. That eternity will spend either in resurrection to life or a resurrection to judgment. Now there's something about verse 29 that's kind of curious to us. And it is the mention of deeds. Of deeds. Those who did the good deeds get the resurrection to life. Those who did the evil deeds get the resurrection to judgment. Why the mention of deeds? Why works? Is Jesus saying that the resurrection to life is attained or earned by the deeds that we do? No, he is not. What he is describing with the mention of deeds is the lifestyle, the character, the nature of the people who are partaking in that particular resurrection. So the resurrection to, uh, to life is not earned or gained by the deeds that we do. But friends, you will know, you will know those who enjoy the resurrection of life because they are the ones who after they have trusted Christ, lived a life that was in keeping with that newness of life. So the individual who has been born again in verses 24 and 25, who has passed from death to life, they do the good deeds. They do the works that are prepared beforehand for them. They are God's workmanship, and they do the, the deeds and the works that God has given to them to do. So this good deeds is not the means of this salvation. It is the evidence of salvation. And those who did the evil deeds, those are the ones... They, that's what characterizes those who enjoy the judgment 
or to suffer the resurrection to judgment. They are those who did the evil deeds. We've already talked about evil deeds back in chapter 3. There is a reason why those who are headed for judgment do not come to the light. They hate the light, and they do not want to come to the light. Why? Because the light will expose their evil deeds. But those who are born of God come to the light because they want their deeds to be manifest as having been wrought in God. So the resurrection that those who have come to Christ enjoy is the resurrection to life, and they are the ones, the elect, the born-again ones, those who are the saved and the redeemed, they're characterized and their life is characterized by good deeds. And those are the ones who will enjoy the resurrection to life. But those who will not come to the light, will not embrace the Son, will not bow the knee, they will suffer the resurrection to judgment. And one of the defining marks and characteristics of them is that they have done the evil and wicked deeds. They have lived a life and died in a way that is evidence that that is, the ju- that is what they deserve. The resurrection to life is not what we deserve. The resurrection to life is merely the culmination of a salvation that results in a changed life where we do the good deeds and honor the Father by honoring the Son, and so we enjoy that resurrection. Everything we've covered here in John 5, and I feel like I've gone through five sermons worth of stuff all in one Sunday. This is sufficient to, I think, overturn a lot of false beliefs and ideas of our own day. There are people who think it doesn't matter what you do with your life, as long as you profess Christ at some point. Just pray the prayer, make a statement. It doesn't matter how you live your life. Just as long as you sort of sign the card and check the box, you're in like Flynn, and you don't have to worry about anything else. That's not true. Your life that you live is a manifestation of whether you will partake in the judgment, to, resurrection to life or the resurrection to judgment. And there are some who teach that this life is all there is. You just go around the carousel once, you hop off, Right into the grave, you become worm food, and that's it. You just dissolve into nothingness. There is no life after this life. There are others who teach that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. There's really no resurrection to judgment. Everybody gets the resurrection to life, because after you die, we're all going to make it into heaven eventually, because Jesus is going to have his way, and love is going to win. And there are some who teach that after this world, and after you die, that the those who are resurrected to life go on forever. But the resurrection to judgment only lasts for a period of time and eventually everybody is annihilated. That's not true. Both of these resurrections are eternal resurrections to an eternal state. Either life or judgment. Now friends, every person sitting here is right now, if you were to die, that would seal whether or not you are going to enjoy the resurrection to life or the resurrection to judgment. There was a time before I got saved that I was a partaker in the resurrection to judgment. That's where I was headed. I was on the road that would lead me to the judgment of God. Because you, like I, and like everybody else sitting around you, either are or at one time a blasphemer, a violator of God's law, a liar, a thief, an idolater, a person who's dishonored your parents, you've lusted, you've hated, you've broken all of God's laws, and the just and right thing for the God of all of creation to do is to punish you for your sins. That is the right thing. And one single crime is enough in the court of God to condemn me for infinite suffering for all of eternity because of the one against whom I have sinned. But God is gracious and God is kind and God offers to forgive our sins. He sent His Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty that you deserve. And if you will embrace Him, you will find that His penalty or His payment on that cross is sufficient to save you. And if you will not embrace Him and you will not honor the Father by honoring the Son and come to Him for life 
and believe upon Him and entrust yourself to Him, turn from your sin and embrace the Son, if you will not do that, you will never pass from death into life. And you will die in a state of spiritual death. And you will suffer the wrath of God in the judgment, in the resurrection to judgment for all of eternity. Because listen, as horrible as it sounds, as unbelievable as it might be to you to hear this, that is exactly what you deserve for your life of crimes. It's exactly what you deserve. I've got what I don't deserve. I did not deserve life. I did not deserve salvation. I did not deserve to be redeemed. But you know what I got? I got the opposite of what I deserved. I deserved the wrath of God for all of eternity. But instead, God called me. God saved me. God redeemed me. He gave me life when I trusted His Son. And I know now for, I now know forever I will enjoy the resurrection to life. You must repent. And you must believe the Savior and honor the Father by honoring the Son. And if you will not come to Him, I'm telling you right now, you will suffer the wrath of God because that is what you deserve. I beg of you, if you do not know Christ, today, be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Today. Resurrection to life. Resurrection to judgment. These are eternal and weighty issues, are they not? Only a fool, only the lowest of fools, would live this entire life and never give these things any thought. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Son who has atoned for our sin and brought us near to You. We thank You for the hope that we have to look forward to. And I do pray, O God, that every person sitting here this morning may have a share in the resurrection to life and may escape the judgment that is to come by embracing Your Son. Thank You for such a perfect and willing Savior. Thank You for a Savior who will not cast us out and will not turn us away when we come to Him in faith. We praise You and Your gracious kindness to us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.